I'm Carrie Benedett, and this is my podcast, Thriving Matters, where you will find tools to revitalize you and your relationships, whether at work or in your personal life. Well, a little bit about me. I'm an education consultant specialising in emotional intelligence and I use creative approaches that empower people with proven processes. I'm known for my high energy, passion and compassion for those in need of help and I like to shine a spotlight on what we can do. I'm here to bring positivity, confidence and strength every day, everywhere. My mantra in life has been, let's give it a red hot shot. Evening, everyone. Welcome to Thriving Matters Studio tonight. And in the house, there's a little bit of madness, you might say. Great track selected by Eddie Blass. Hi, Eddie. How are you tonight? Hi. Great. Thank you. <laughs> and the see, I've got the thorn between the roses tonight. And <laughs> you have, you have, yeah. Nick Burnett. <laughs> Hi, Carrie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm so thrilled to have you both on tonight and I'm looking forward to cracking conversation about your interests, your passion around futuristic thinking, creating innovative thinking, all those great things. And at the middle, as we're in the middle of a COVID epidemic, our um, series for Thriving Matters Studio is all around education matters. So, Thank you very much, listeners. If you are listening tonight, pop onto the chat and give us a little bit of love as we go through. You will be riveted to the conversation tonight, I am sure, as you have been in previous weeks with our other great guests. Australia, you know, um, is really blessed with creative, divergent thinkers. And one of the things that's going to be the best thing for our education system is to be able to bring those viewpoints, that thinking together. So let's keep this positive trait. Let's be the optimists above the line thinkers in all this because we have some real issues to think about and to work towards. So let's start with um, with Eddie first. So Eddie, it's great to be able to introduce you and we did discover this afternoon a little bit about your heritage, um, mainly through your accent. So I'm just I'm just one of those curious bees that has to ask. So, you know, born in Scotland, yes, not far from my family, my family of origin in the top of the top of the UK, just near the Scottish border, and then into into London, you've got sort of miles, and then over to South Australia, yes, yeah, great. All right, I was in Melbourne first, so I'm I'm feeling the love for all my friends in lockdown. Thank you, thank you very much. And usually we send a little, um, little bit of love down to Melbourne um, during this time. Lots and lots of educators, um, many who we we probably have in common. Um, but let's have a look, Eddie. You um, are great interest in transforming learning, um, cooperative and social enterprises. Um, your research background, you have. A lot of experience in the education sector in all parts of education, not just schooling, but post-school, TAFE, university. You, your research really brings to the fore your curiosity around learning and the ways that we learn and um, the way we also develop our leadership across our, our education sector. Oh, it's it's an amazing CV, so bear with me. You know, teamwork, uh, all stakeholders being represented. 
you're very, very collaborative in what you do, but you really look for future skills and they, they appear to be the drivers for what you're doing. Um, online learning, scenario planning, practice-based research, talent management. Oh, my gosh. Do you do you exhaust yourself in? You're very welcome tonight. Now, let's move over to, to Nick. Um, Nick is a, also a presenter and an executive coach. And many years ago, Nick and I did bump into each other when we when I had started my coaching interest. And um, we have been um, colleagues ever since then. Nick's had a number of education roles, leadership roles, from teacher through to senior leader, school principal. And since 2004, you've been a coach, a trainer and consultant. But you have a really keen interest in the future, navigating myriads, myriad of leadership, restorative practices, solution-focused practices, and you have a real passion for our different learners, our diverse learning needs of students. Uh, and I know you've been recognised, both of you have been recognised by your peers in the fields of education. So welcome to you both. So let's get down. Look, I don't know, as I've said to a number of times, I, I get a little bit tired, I get a little bit exhausted when I read amazing things <laughs> that you've both done. So thank you for saying yes and uh, being interested. We've got a lot to talk about. So let's kick off with uh, what it is that we think the kind of impact education needs to make in the next two to five years. Not not too big a question to start us off, so <laughs> jump in. <laughs> go on, Eddie, you go. go on, me first. Um, so I think, you know, in the next two to five years, it's going to be pivotal um, in terms of change in education and the impact that it can have. And I think, you know, COVID has, in many ways, um, and particularly for those in Victoria, giving people an insight into how education can be different, both good and bad. Um, and it's it John Hattie described it in a, a Lessons from Lockdown conference is, is that a massive educational experiment we would never have got ethics approval for, um, which I thought was a great way of, you know, describing it. And, you know, it's just like shut all the schools and let's see what happens. And it's, I mean, and that's worldwide. The rest of Australia apart from Victoria, has really um, been let off the hook very lightly mm. when you look at what's happening worldwide. And for me, the danger is that as COVID becomes less of a threat, people just go back to the old patterns and norms without really taking the positive lessons that we've learned from this experience forward. Um, because there have been lots of positives. There's also been lots of you know, stress, difficulties and disasters for people. I get that as well. But, you know, it, it's two sides of a of a skill. Yeah. Um, and I'd really like to see the positives from COVID coming forward and, and really helping boost education out of that 19th century um, model that the late Sir Ken Robinson spoke about. You know, yeah. this is almost like the impetus we needed to kickstart the change and push us into the future. So that's really what I hope to see in the next two to five years is that we embed those changes um, and really sort of develop them and underpin teacher training differently and all those types of things that can have the knock-on effects. 
I'm going to go back to those changes, the positive changes, after we, we hear from Nick. Is that all right, Eddie? So we'll, we'll keep the flow going. So it'll be over to you two to keep chatting. So, Nick, what about you? What do you yeah. think, two to five years? Yeah. There's so, some absolute synergies, not unsurprising, what Eddie said. Uh, and uh, it's been interesting to, to see that play out in the way it has in many ways. As I say, we've been thrown into one of my sort of pet, pet um, things I like in many ways is what I call practice-based evidence. So a lot of talk in education quite right about evidence-based practice, but that might throw back you. Someone's going to try this somewhere to end up with evidence <laughs> that it works. You know, people think it just falls out of Finland largely, but it falls out of now. But people need to try it. So we've been pushed into this massive experiment but I, I came across it in some of my other reading around every organisation has an immune system. Mm -hmm. This is what they're talking about for me is, and I think education has got an incredible immune system <laughs> that wants things, and I can certainly see this in Queensland where I'm based, where we had, we had, you know, kids were not in school for only five weeks. Since then, they've been back in school. Now, I, I go into schools and there's not a huge amount of change and that, that's a caution. I'm optimistic that we can move forward as a consequence of this experiment. But I think, you know, people are actually quite comfortable going back to the status quo. Yeah. Like teachers, I say, teachers and school leaders are, I'm not so sure about the kids. So that's the hope, the change I hope to see is actually, and this is already happening in some schools as, as it always always is, you know, it's not, not my quote, but the future's already here, just unevenly distributed, isn't it? So. Part of what I tr think, I, I, you know, what I try and do is seek out those schools, those organisations that are already reimagining what the future might be. And those that are doing it well, one of the key factors for me is really engaging with the students. What do they need? How do they best learn as opposed to what suits how we teach or what suits how we deliver the curriculum? It's sort of the tail wagging the dog from my perspective. And there's a whole range of reasons which we don't have to dive into why we potentially ended up where where we are. But it, it, it needs leaders to be truly courageous to actually seize this moment. So here's an opportunity that's really disrupted people. Out. Now we've got a chance to reimagine how things can be as opposed to let's just get through COVID and then revert back to the way things have traditionally been. It's uh, an interesting. I like that um, immune system. Mm. It's it's a it's an experiment that was abrupt and immediate for mm. how we're going to do this. So come on, Eddie, give us some of those positives <laughs> that you led with. Come on. Uh, well, I think you know some of the positives are that you know kids who were disengaging from school, some of them have actually got really engaged through learning mm. at home. Um, because they're much more in control of what they're learning, how they learn and when they learn it. And so what it has done is it's demonstrated to schools that there is a group who are um, much more independent learners than perhaps the schools have thought. Um, and maybe they can be better catered for in future in a kind of school system where maybe they go in two days a week and three days a week work remotely on projects and um, utilise different pedagogies than the teacher being the sage on the stage at the front and actually allowing the kids to um, develop, you know, develop their own inquiry skills, their research skills, their ways of doing things. Um, so I think that's one of the real positives. Um, not sure every teacher would agree, but <laughs> it's back to that courageous leadership thing. 
Um, I think um, other positives, you know, it's really challenged some teachers in the way that they teach um, and um, helped them move from assumptions that they held that might have been myths, um, such as them needing to be completely in control, them needing to be the font of all knowledge, them needing to do all the talking. Um, because what you're seeing through the online learning spaces is teachers realizing that actually online, you know, when, I mean, I've taught online for years, uh, mainly at universities, but we find that when we get students to present, they really get it. If you, if you get students to present live in a classroom, 15 minute presentation flies by. Mm. They present live through Zoom, mm. five minutes starts to feel long. Mm. Uh -huh. pre-recorded it as a video two and a half minutes and you're falling asleep right and it can be the same presentation mm. but that's the impact the medium has on the delivery point of yeah. it um and so teachers are realizing that actually them delivering to kids for a whole hour through zoom and the kids are falling asleep and disappearing and dropping off um which an hour in the classroom doesn't feel that same length of time. And so what they're doing yeah. now is they're delivering less and conversing more. It's yeah. to engage and write in the chat and asking questions, which is really in many ways developing their teaching practice. Yeah. It would be great if they can then take that back into the classroom and keep that much more discursive um, dialogue in the classroom rather than being the one doing the teaching as such. Well, there's even implications for the the student and the teacher relationship there, mm. aren't there? Exactly. Which, which which are really rich, yeah. Nick, what any other thoughts from you? Yeah. So so building on again what Eddie said there. So the big thing is it can be very easy to get into uh, teacher bashing mode, can't it? In some ways, you know, for a whole range of yeah. reasons. And and for me, is unfortunately, you know, as as, as educators, we were have been, you know, if we've been in education largely, you know, I certainly was successful in the old paradigm of what this is. So I talk about a couple of bits there. One is we've got to unlearn some mindsets that the best way to, to, to for learning is to get them all in a classroom and listen to the teacher or whatever else he might be. So helping people think differently because they've been successful in the old system. And so it, again, it needs a, a degree of vulnerability and courageousness to accept you know, then it might not have been the best, but but now I think increasingly people are recognising there's got to be a better approach to learning. Mm. But we've got to let go of being the one with the right answer. You know, and being wrong and saying I don't know, and being okay with that, as opposed to teachers historically and school leaders, and and people perceiving them as having the answer. You know, actually saying let, let's let's be a bit vulnerable together. Let's find out. Let's find out. You know, that driving that curiosity to go and seek how do we find out as opposed to us feeling we've got to have the, <clears throat> the right answer around that and and that links in very strongly for me about helping teachers teach differently you know kids will largely going to grab whatever new opportunities and new approaches there are to how we deliver education uh, as opposed to it having to be just the traditional way but help and again this is the you know the, the trouble with the that the rush how rushed the experiment was, some people can naturally shift their pedagogical style and approach, but most can't. They've grown mm -hmm. up in an era where it was teacher, it was more largely didactic and everything else. 
and absolutely, you know, different levels of <coughs> expertise and qualities mm -hmm. around that. But to expect them just to be able to flip their approach is a big ask. You know, so oh. they need. How do we help them? You yeah. know, Eddie's level of learned loads from her journey around online learning and yet we just expected teachers to be able to change from being in a classroom teaching kids to online and thought what why are they struggling you know and for me is why are we surprised <laughs> yeah and, and and you know very much that and I, I really don't want to sound like i'm teacher bashing and everything that i've posted online i hope has never sounded like that no. because i first taught online when i was at the university of derby which is probably about 20 years ago and we had a contract with a college in Israel and the Israeli government changed the rules and we suddenly had to have Derby lecturers teach the, the students rather than Israeli lecturers teach the students. And we started doing this broadcast live teaching. Um, and I stupidly volunteered for it at the time because I was very interested in early adopter on things. I cannot tell you how difficult it was and how bad we were at it. And that is literally what everybody was thrown into here. Um, yeah. And I, you know, very early on, I sort of started to post up, you know, five things I learned from that experience and what I was doing. And just simple things like don't pre-record lectures or lessons because you'll spend hours <laughs> and you're much better just to live broadcast and record it at the time. Um, yeah. And to try and get the interactions going and to ask questions. And at first, people will be uncomfortable speaking through Zoom and stuff. So just get them to post in the chat and all that type of thing. But everybody was so overwhelmed um, that, you know, a lot of it kind of went sort of over people's heads, which I get. Um, because it did for us when we were doing that initial experiment. And since then, you know, I've been working on, so how can we make that kind of like distant online learning better? Mm -hmm. And I've worked in various universities and courses and stuff and then developed the inventorium. And what we did with the inventorium is completely redesign the whole pedagogic teaching mm -hmm. process uh, because there were so many inherent difficulties in trying to teach the, what you do the way you do in a classroom online. So oh, you yeah. almost have to design the whole curriculum for online first and then you can pick it up and teach it in a classroom or blend it. But it's really mm -hmm. difficult to go the other way because the way that you think about people interacting, the way you think about groups coming together, questions being answered, conversations building, just doesn't happen in the same way online. No, no. And that's that's any, any of us who have been on Zooms, have been in professional learning, we've all noticed what the difference is. And part of it is the fatigue that you get from from that. Mm -hmm. I think that's also... Um, moving around with how we're learning from it. So, yeah, um, the university class, you might have three hours scheduled. It's a live session and you can run for three hours with a coffee break in the middle and everybody's engaged for the three hours. Three hours online is exceptionally hard. You're yeah. more likely to do one hour and then another hour later on with like lots of chat in between. Uh, because that, you know, period of time online, as you say, the fatigue is just phenomenal. So I don't know how teachers have, you know, where they've been working like standard school day online all the time. I mean, that would just yeah. be so draining. Look, one of the things I was going to say to you both was what I'm hearing uh, uh, from many people is that the teachers um, are working longer than they were face to face. And then we all know if you've, I have, I've, 
have a family of teachers. Most of us, if we're in the in the uh, profession, have have some type of outer circle that uh, keeps supporting us. But it's interesting because um, their well-being really comes to mind. How can you continue to give? It's a bit like the oxygen mask on the plane. Mm. How can you continue to give when you're not getting uh, as much back as you would? As, as in face-to-face. -face. So there has to be a difference in, in how you do it. But there, I am concerned for teachers' uh, feelings of well-being, the way that they are seeing themselves as professionals because they are doing what they, um, they do best, giving as much of themselves as possible. And, um, you know, I, I find it really interesting. Nick, you mentioned, you know, some things around teacher training. I think we're in a whole new orbit and with with that comes, and if you think about electrons, neutrons, and the whole whole scale of of, of energy, you know we're looking to um, we're really looking to re-energize how we go about teaching in a in a different world because it's highly possible that these pandemics and viruses will not disappear. <clears throat> it's highly possible that we have kids who will say, Actually, it didn't work for me. I prefer my project-based learning, and and we may have families that say, I don't want my kids to go to a, a physical structure of a school. They did better. So we we could very well have a ver great variety of opinion around this. So, yeah, look, Nadia will get more to this because I know that some of her philosophy around inventorium and and thinking around it, but. The challenge is, and this is not sort of uh, not a but at all, but in terms of th rethinking how, because historically, I think in many ways it's a convenient system. How do you get lots of people into a time where we can do that, and then everyone can go out to work, or a lot more people can go out to work? So it is rethinking at a societal level, because and this historically is what happens, isn't it? There's problems in society, and educators are expected to solve all these problems. Yes, and this is what you know, and, and that's impossible anyway but this is one where there's a whole structural challenge to how education is organized and particularly the younger the young the, the person is yeah. uh, etc so there's some real societal things and you know in many ways that needs to be a, a much broader conversation than expecting schools to disrupt themselves because most people don't like to disrupt themselves you know there's three people here i think <laughs> it might be a bit unusual but most people like to like to stay with what they know in well, much as they might known about it at times, but it, but it's 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 what we know, you know, which is you know yeah. that better the devil you know, and right, it's not perfect, but it's okay. Uh, and I think there's a real big piece for me in how we educate in its broadest sense the parents around the opportunities and how we help them think differently as well. I mean, again, there's probably been never been a better time because some have been thrown into. <laughs> suddenly trying to do yeah. a full-time job and educate you know how did anyone think that was <laughs> going to work out successfully and and so maybe it is that opportunity to rethink you know what is the purpose of education which is a big question and then how do we, how do we best uh, structure things you know the the system uh, and again that that automatically makes me feel anxious because as soon as you make a system you know we, we want to make things the same and and we yeah. all know every school you go into is different, never mind the young person in that school. And yet we want to sort of make it just this, these sort of nice cookie-sized 
cutter approach, isn't it? That everyone goes to this, everyone receives it at this time, in this way, at that way. And it's not as simple as that. And look, I like, look, I like the comment Maurizio's made about controlled learning, you know, and yeah, that's absolutely. really what it is. It's, you know, it's this yeah. notion of controlled learning. Um, and I just wonder how, you know, relevant that notion of control is today when kids yeah. are so out of control in all other respects. Mm. You know, and for me, like the core thing about the school that, you know, when I, that just makes me cringe, it's the bell. It's like yeah. a bell goes, everybody's in the corridors and the bell goes and everyone's disappeared and it feels like a prison um, in that respect. Mm. It's like all doors open, everyone out, all doors closed, everyone in. Um, and I, you know, that the levels of anxiety that some kids get is difficult. Mm. And almost the bigger the school, the worse it gets. And yet they're building these super schools now. And I kind of don't get where the evidence base is coming from that's leading sort of policy development and school development, because what we find in the inventorium is the more personalized approach, the less control that we put on kids, the more control they take themselves and the better the outcomes overall for the kid in the longer term and the better their confidence. Um, and, and they develop their own sense of time management when, when there's no bell. <laughs> yeah, and that's really hard for the schools that have been in lockdown is when there's no bell, how getting the kids to, Zoom classes on time. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because when you are in a, uh, you're, you're really doing something that you've totally focused in, you're, you're concentrating, you know how quickly the time goes when you actually come up and go, oh, I thought that was going to take me 20 minutes. It actually took an hour and a half and I was right in there. When you look back on it, you step away from it, you go, wow. I really did some thinking there, I've, you know, I've, I've extended. Because I think the distinction gets made now between is it teaching and learning or is it teaching for learning? And I, and I that's where I've gone uh, as I've been doing some research for all these programs with, with everyone. We are, we have more and more um, information coming to us around studies that are being done so I'm hoping that there are some universities doing some very large um, studies at the moment on student response to different delivery of education, perhaps. And I, and I probably haven't expressed that as well as I, as I could. So I know you're thinking there, Eddie. Well, there's actually there's a huge issue in Australia from education research, um, and that is the ethics and education research in Australia. Um, which was actually Nick, your point about practice-based evidence. Um, in the UK, the British Education Research Association allows you to write up teaching practice where you discover something new and exciting if it happened in the course of your work. So you didn't have to get ethics to try something in the classroom. If you tried something and it worked, you could write it up. You can't do that in Australia. You have to get retrospective ethics from every kid who was in the classroom or the parent of every kid was in the classroom, mm -hmm. which is really, really limiting. So there was lots of stuff we discovered when we'd been teaching in Australia that we just didn't bother writing up because it was like, no. oh, it's too hard. You know, it's like, just don't bother. Um, so in terms of studies being done in Australia, I think, um, well, it will be interesting to see, I think there will be studies, I'm not sure they'll come out of universities. So pivot mm -hmm. learning, for example, have published a couple of great reports. 
um, and particularly one they did with a video of students and how they were finding learning under lockdown. Uh, that one was particularly good, but they've also done some on teachers. Um, but it's not through the universities, because the universities are required to go through the ethics committees. And the way that it works with education is very limited. Thank you. Thank you for that. that. I'm just going to put that in the chat because that's pivot research, yeah? Yeah, PIV pivot learning. Pivot learning yeah. research. Right, thank you. Yeah. I'm going to just put that in because we will have some listeners who are interested in that, yeah. Our parents... Yeah. Um, our parents um, have have really been quite vocal as well, saying that um, they felt the care, the care and the love and the concern from the schools where their, their children were at. And um, last week, Chris Smythe was was telling us that in his system of schools, the, what they've all decided has been the bonus of all this is the increased parent home school partnership around the students' learning. So. I'm, I'm, I would hope that we could free up and capture some of the, the good things that are happening, but the observations uh, that we need to take into consideration. So let's hope we, we can actually move a little bit forward on that. Because for me, the well-being of everyone concerned is the issue here. Because we won't learn if our well-being is, is under threat, if we're under stress, if it, we, you know, that's... No. No. There's so a you, couple you of bits. Good... Sorry, Sorry Carrie. <laughs> you, you'd have some, some good examples of what you've seen, what you've heard and observed um, around um, some uh, practical practical measures mm. that schools and school learning communities have done. So are there any that you'd like to um, to focus on tonight? There's one, well, one before, before I share, it sort of comes back to... To Eddie's point, I said, you know, in terms of the ethics, and I didn't didn't realise that, and it's quite interesting, isn't it? So, so one of the the mindsets I've sort of thrown out that, that systems and some educators need to unlearn is, you know, virtually every system I engage with, they, they want innovation. You know, innovation is in there, and and schools say they're innovative, but certainly systems and to some degree schools want zero risk. And I always say, well, you can't have both. There's got to be some risk. How much risk? What's the appetite, and how do we balance that? Because and that—that's people willing to give things a go and see, you know. So we don't make it massive. We don't do too much, but those sort of testing out, which is which sort of resonates with me. And around, around an example, I, I was lucky enough to come across um, some colleagues through Singularity U Australia, and and one of them there is is on a board and helps sort of a set up a school, a Montessori-based school. In the in the Hunter region, and and they they based it around what's called learning without borders. Um, and again, I can you know I'll, I'll try and go and find where where you might be able to access that. But they have this this lovely thinking about you know rather than it being you know learning is what happens at school and then and it doesn't happen at home. That's that's not reality. So that really saying it you know the opportunities are there in any environment how do we get closer connections with the parent with the local community that, that's what's important and relevant in in our particular particular organization and they have a lovely called tapestry we call it the tapestry of learning where there's loads of bits that you know well, different things will be more important in different communities but it for me, it sort of summarizes, you know, you know, Kerry, I love words and what they mean, but summarizes the complexity of, of really learning around this as opposed to it 
you know, and then don't have bells. You know, there's no bells there. Kids are very self-autonomous and they're facilitated in their learning and, and some guiding if they're younger and need a bit of support. But they're not told, all right, from 9 till 10, you have to do this and 10 to 11, you have to do this. It's negotiated. And then there's yeah. learning opportunities. But that's continued outside of school as opposed to homework being sent, <laughs> being done. It's just a continuation of that learning journey. Mm -hmm. I know both of you are really interested in using scenario planning in the work that you do. So I think this would be a great opportunity to tell us a little bit about that because part of the reason we're doing the uh, the Education Matters um, focus is to really increase our awareness of what some of the possibilities are because we tend to stay with what we know and what we're comfortable with and what was perhaps done to us uh, and, and, you know, there's there's a whole lot of things around that. So scenario planning. How could well, we use idea it? You me to go. <laughs> I'm happy either way. <laughs> you go first, mate. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's a fascinating sp space. And uh, as you said at the start, Carrie, for me, it's like coaching on speed. You know, it's sort of really throwing out. So often, not that not that one-to-one -one executive coaching can't be more distant, but it generally is a bit more shorter term. So it's, again, that, that sense of what might be, and, and often they'd say five, ten, or even a lot further into the future how things might be. One of the people I've come across in my conversation is a futurist called Frank Diana, and he's got some lovely phrases. One he talks about, for me, is rehearsing the future. And that's, that's really what scenarios are for me, is an opportunity. At the moment, I think we bunker down because people can't think how, how different education might be. Yeah. You know, we've all grown up in the way school is, we've been to school the way it is, and if we've worked in schools, we've worked in schools. So it's really hard to imagine anything different. Mm. So actually giving people alternatives of how things might be gives them a sense of, okay, we don't have to just keep doing, repeating the same mistake or, tw or you know, tweaking the edges. Actually, what might be different? And then, you know, again, you'll know from coaching, if we have a really compelling vision to aim at, then we can start to think, okay, how, where we are, rather than throwing everything out, where, how do we move from where we are to where we want to be? But we have to have a shared vision <laughs> of what that compelling future is. And for me, scenarios, and there can be, there's a whole range of ways they can be used um, to help people think differently as opposed to just thinking with it. And, that, you know, and I think you put on the uh, Facebook post about thinking outside the box, and it wasn't mine, but it did make me smile. They talked about that's so, so 20th century. We've got to think outside the dodecahedron now. It's ready to smile. But that's what many scenario planning is, is to think, here's some different versions of the future. Then, as a group, which one is most compelling for us? How do we start heading towards that as opposed to, it's not working, let's just do it differently because we don't know where we're heading then. Oh, that's very... That's creative. That's really using imagination, creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at risk, I suppose, for what's needed. Eddie, you, you're I said about dreaming as well. Just sorry, Eddie, but I think about dreaming. It's seen, it's seen mm. as a dirty word when you get older, dreaming. Well, why shouldn't we dream? If we don't dream, then we're going to be just doing these little incremental things. We've got to dream of something more compelling. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think for me, scenarios are at their best when um, the basis of a scenario is what the world would look like if an assumption that we hold has gone. Mm. Uh, 
you know, so if you change a base assumption, what does the world look like? Um, just from changing one base assumption. Um, and there's, there's a set of scenarios that were published recently by IDEO on um, reimagining the future, some radical thoughts for the future of education or something like that it's called. If you go, I'm sure it's on their website, IDEO. Um, and they're fantastic because I think in something like three out of the four scenarios, school as we know it does not exist. Mm. Um, and so that's the first time I've really seen scenarios challenge the, you know, the, the assumption that school in a building <laughs> that kids go to from nine to three exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, I just think, you know, they're really, that's a, in terms of a thinking tool to help schools um, recover from COVID in a forward moving yeah. direction. This publication is one that I think leads the way in getting people to really think about things differently. It asks challenging assumptions like what if the um, trust relationship between parents and teachers is already broken? Mm -hmm. you know, well, we assume that that's there. We yeah, assume yeah. parents are going to actually support teachers and back them up. But actually what was happening prior to COVID a lot of the time was they weren't. Maybe they will more now. They've got <laughs> yeah. experience of being teachers. <laughs> but, you know, what if... What, what if? That, that's it. What if? And I, I said to Nick earlier, while we were, were waiting to come on, you know, what what if we have a whole lot of parents who now say it didn't work for my kids, but they're they're reading their literacy, um, the the basic skills, really shone through it during during the isolation mm -hmm. period. You know, not being taught from at home. Um, what if that happens? What if we have another massive increase in the number of homeschooled um, Well, because also what it's pivot professional learning. I suddenly realised when you wrote it up, there's a word missing. It's pivot professional learning. But what their research showed, amongst other things, was that the kids miss the extracurricular activities more than the school lessons. So there's yeah. almost something about go back to offering that first to really make the kids feel well, improve their, you know, their yeah. social and emotional well-being, and then gradually add back classes. Um, because the sort of classes yeah. that they're coping with, the bit they're not coping with is missing the extracurricular activity, which was where yeah. they really make their friends and have fun. Yeah. And you, and for you me would expect is that, that. You would expect that. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, it comes back, and you mentioned it earlier too, Carrie, that it's almost seen as, well, not almost, it often is seen as social-emotional learning as, as, a, as an add-on, as opposed to a foundation. Because as you said, if we're not in a great space, no matter how great the teaching is, I'm not going to learn anything if I'm not in a great space. So it's seen as like, where can we fit it in? A bit here and a bit there, as opposed to let's get that bit right and let's see what we've got left and what might be useful to add in. That yeah. way, sort of trying to flip, as you were saying, Eddie, sort of flipping the, Flipping the view, isn't it? And just because in some ways it's hard to measure, unfortunately, I think, you know, it worries me that that's why it's not in there, that we can't measure things and we can't say, you know, we can't judge teachers by their measurement or schools by what they achieve around that, as mm -hmm. opposed to decent, thriving human beings all find their own journeys. You know, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my education, but, you know, but it was largely the social side of things. I could, I could do the things I needed to do to pass. 
you know, but, you know, how much of that that I learned going through primary, no, primary school I did, because reading and writing and arithmetic, you know, they're still pretty foundational. But what did I learn at secondary school? How much of that do I access? Oh, hardly any, hardly any, very, very little do I access. Some people will access loads, but that's the risk is we expect everyone to have to have the same thing as though we're all going to go off and do the same career. Now, that was never true. Is it even even more incorrect going forward? Because we don't know what jobs are going to be created. We can't that's, even imagine what most of them are. That's so true, isn't it? It's so true. We don't we don't actually know. We're sort of second guessing ourselves, um, looking at what trends are. But the 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 great thing is we're actually using AI um, to help us compile, connect, and and change. That's what I I, I think. But I, I, I think as a young person today, and I was facing that, and people constantly were telling me, oh, chances are half the jobs you'll be doing don't even exist yet. I'd find that really unnerving. And I'm pretty yeah, good yeah. at working with uncertainty and working with uncertainty because <laughs> I like playing with the future. And it's, you know, uh, but, you know, if you were leaving school now and you're about to incur a lot of hex debt, um, mm. studying for something that might not even exist in the future. And I mean, well, that just, the, you know, the anxiety that would create for me would be huge. Um, and I don't know how we help kids deal with that other than talk to them about it. But, it, it you know, we, we never had that pressure. We never no, thought no. it was going to change that fast. Um, whereas now they're almost like thinking, well, I learned this, it's out of date already. And then, I, you know, then what? And it, it's almost like, you know, what's the point? sometimes it's, it's, you're, you're absolutely right and it's an interesting mm. tension isn't it because it's all, almost and i know you're not suggesting i don't think you're suggesting this in terms mm. of saying all right choose a career and you're going to get your gold watch at the end of it either <laughs> so the way i and not say it's the right way the way i've spoken to our kids is think what what do you enjoy what it's a bit like the ikigai I forget what exactly what it means now that japanese concept yep. what am i good what do i love uh, what does the world need? What can I get some income for? There's another one, isn't there? But yeah, what am I passionate yep. about? I can't remember yep. now. I've done it in yep. the wrong order. But have a sense of for the next two or three years, what do you want to give your time to rather than trying to overthink something you're going to do for 20 or 30 years and also thinking, mm. oh, it's not no point because no one knows anything, isn't it? I, I don't know if that's the right answer, but trying to make it a bit more manageable, this this thing. And it, a real tipping point for me was about, and it's good school, I'm not criticising the school here, it would have been about four years ago going to a careers evening, why we still call them careers evenings, but going to a careers evening and thinking, this hasn't fundamentally changed when I was at school. Yeah. This thing, you've got to choose your pathway for life. That That's not helpful either, because they'll head off and end up with a math tech set. Why didn't you come on warm there? This might not be a job for life. But there is, there is a balance there, absolutely. And I, I, I agree. You made me just think then um, none of what we're going through now should actually um, force anyone to drop the idea that they can't learn anymore. Yeah. No. It, it really should be piquing our curiosity to say, yeah. what, what, what if this happened? What if, what if? And that's, I think that's why, um, you know, we've got such a big challenge in front of us, but it's an exciting one at the same time. Um, and for those who want to call me an internal, um, eternal <laughs> optimist, you can go right ahead. I'm also a pragmatist <laughs> and I can be a realist, but I think we've got a red hot shot to have a good look at how we can really build all the skills for social and emotional well-being 
then look at how we know how we learn, how we build our relationships, because we can source the knowledge very easily. It's at the yeah. at our yeah. fingertips, isn't it? Um, yeah. Look, I have to thank you both for a very engaging conversation tonight. There are some comments on the chat for our listeners if they're curious about some of the uh, the things we've been talking about. Um, Eddie, if anyone would like to get in contact with you, what would you prefer? How would you like them to contact you? Uh, emails, first. Just email me. Yep. And can you share my email address? Or do you want to... <laughs> Eddie, 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 Okay, that's one gone. Nick, you're, you're yeah, easy to look find at, as well. Social media probably is the best way. Well, not any social media, but LinkedIn is right. the best way probably just if they connect with me on there and obviously email exchanges there. Look, um, LinkedIn for Nick. Beautiful. I'm going to just do it. Really it's shorthand. It needs to be a dot .au on the end of mine. Oh, kidoki. I'll go back and I'll pick that up. <laughs> <laughs> it's showing I'm not multitasking at this time. That's right. right. It's super hard for all of us, isn't it? <laughs> I, I do have to thank you both. Um, super, super interested in what you're, what you're doing and what you're involved in. And I want to thank you for your sense of passion and curiosity around that. I think uh, this, is, this is a great time for you um, in, in how we go forward. It's a great time for our globe to be looking at how we can do things differently and how we can care for each other at the same time. And we keep those two, two together yeah. because people, people matter. You and I yeah. matter. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think it's a very exciting time, but I also appreciate yeah. it's exceptionally stressful yeah. for teachers yeah. who are in it at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, just want, want to reiterate that, you know, we really do feel and understand that tension yeah. and stress because um, it's easy for those of us who are slightly on the sidelines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, it is. It is. And it's easy to be philosophical about things as well. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time Thanks tonight. Thanks for the invite, Gary. Go well. Keep, you, you. keep thriving. Thanks, listeners. Uh, check in next Tuesday night, 7.30. Um, we have two amazing educators from Melbourne who will join us. So... Uh, we will be feeling um, all about, we'll be talking um, all about well-being as well as education. So keep that, keep that in mind. Next Tuesday, it's coming up to holiday season in most of the states of Australia. So for those of you who are on holiday breaks now, enjoy and rest. Um, and for those of our teachers who have, who have not stopped, please find the little zones for you, yourself to rest in. Your well-being matters. Okay, thanks everybody. 